Well, we are, um, you can go ahead and open to the book of Leviticus. We're going to reference some verses in there. You'll have, if you got a packet when you came in, um, it should ha- you should see a few things in there. One is fill in the blanks just to make sure you pay attention. The other uh, is a verse reference sheet. So most of the verses that I cite in this packet are going to be in that, in, in that list of verses. There were a few that I left out, and the reason that I left them out is because they were long sections in Leviticus, and so I figured just the reference is going to be fine. You can read that later because we won't read that in detail. And then on the last uh, page, the last, uh, it's a back of one page and then a, a front of another page, is a complete outline of the book of Leviticus. And uh, I, so I'm going to throw in a warning here. I did, I did this in seminary in 2007, and I found it on my computer, and I thought, why don't I just include this in here? Because you'll be reading through the book of Leviticus if you haven't already, and it might be helpful to just kind of see how these passages are break down, broken down and the categories they're broken down. The, ca- the caveat that I want to give there is I don't remember what grade I made, on that, on that assignment. <laughs> so, so uh, hopefully it'll be good. Could be misleading. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so, no, I think it'll be fine. But um, <laughs> will you give? Okay, you're so generous. I thank you, Miss Vicky. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> anyway, um, we're. Obviously, the study that we're doing right now, we began, if you'll remember back at the very beginning when I first got here, what we started off doing was really taking a look at theology and how we understand and know the things that we know. What do we know about God? What is true about God? What does it mean that he is triune? What, all of those things we started looking intently at. And then we also had to establish how do we know what we know? which we established the credibility and authority and infallibility of Scripture itself. And so we looked for a while at that, and then we discussed the fall of mankind. And we stopped there. But we didn't really stop, because once we got to the fall, what I realized was we're going to talk about the fall of man and how we've all fallen in Adam. We're all sinners as a result of Adam's disobedience to God. But then... Uh, it just goes on. Systematic theology then goes to our need for Christ and Christ's coming. But I thought, wait a minute, if we're going to really understand the impact and the ramifications of the fall, why don't we take a deeper look at the Old Testament where it just sort of plays out for us right there in black and white. And so that's what we're, where we're at right now. We're going through the Old Testament, and the hope is to really demystify a lot of the things that are in the Old Testament. My fear, I know I've had this happen to me, and I don't know if this is a common experience, but I know it has been true in my life, is that I open up the Old Testament and begin to read, and immediately the geography is, I don't understand it. And we've got maps back there in the back of the Bible, and sometimes we look at them and sometimes we don't, but the geography is always weird. And I know he went here, and he did this, and he went there, and he did that, and those places surely matter to some extent, but I just don't know what. So that's part of it. And then the other part is he got a bunch of these names that don't make any sense to me and I can't pronounce. And so I think a lot of times those things right there will scare us off from a study of the Old Testament and actually looking in depth at it. On top of all that, you got a lot of weird laws, right? 
got a lot of these strange things that show up in Leviticus. Like, why does that merit the death penalty? That doesn't seem like it should merit the death penalty. Or why, does, why do they do that there? Or why does God require this here? And that seems like he's being just really overly picky. And so there's that part of it too that just leads to this, I don't know, mystifying effect when you read the Old Testament. Like it's a, a world far removed from our own. And I just don't understand why this is the case. And so the hope that, that I, I'm taking in this study is really to, to go into the Old Testament, look at the journey of Israel through the pages of the Old Testament, talk about some of these places in the geography that's mentioned here and show why they're significant, talk about some of the names of people and why those are significant, but then also take the big theological themes that are being opened up in the Old Testament and show how they actually tie in in the New Testament and why they're really important for us. Um, this, this evening, what we're going to do is look uh, pretty closely, well, at least reasonably closely, at the book of Leviticus. And it is going to be a little bit of a flyover, but there's some big important themes that are popping out in Leviticus that we do need to take note of. Now, remember just over the last few weeks, just as a reminder of where we've been just here recently, the children of Israel are, have come out of the uh, land of Egypt through the Exodus, through the, the river, and they've now come, or through the sea, and they've now come to, the, to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, you know, Exodus is broken down into two big sections. You have them coming out of Egypt in the first pretty much half. And then in the second half, you have the building of the tabernacle. And right there in the middle is God giving to them the law. And especially in chapter 19, where he descends on Mount Sinai and he invites Moses and the priests up to Mount Sinai to interact with him. There he gives them the instructions of the law and he gives them the instructions of the tabernacle, precisely how they are supposed to build it. And they commence to building the tabernacle. God is there meeting with his people. And what we saw was that the children of Israel are actually forming a nation. This is where they kind of covenant together with God to form this, this nation. And they've got the, the law that God has given them. They've got their covenant with God. They're going to be God's representatives to the rest of the world. In Exodus 19, he calls them a kingdom of priests, meaning that you, you Israel, are going to be how the rest of the world relates to me how the rest of the world gains access and knowledge of me. The desire, obviously from the very beginning, is for God to come to all the people of the rest of the world and save them. And he aims to do it at first through Israel, or at least to demonstrate that through Israel. And so um, Adam, we saw, failed at doing that. And now Israel has kind of taken up that responsibility. And we saw that him giving the instructions of the tabernacle, his purpose, as listed there in Exodus 25, 8, is what? To dwell with his people. That's the whole purpose that he gives the instructions of the tabernacle so that he can dwell with his people. And so the tabernacle becomes effectively this portable Garden of Eden where Adam had failed in his relationship with God. Now there's a new group coming in and establishing a relationship with God. And there is the tabernacle being formed where God will meet with them once again. And so they're going to take this and, and use it as a transport. But then we also saw in the New Testament where Jesus is identified as the new temple, the new tabernacle. He tells, he, first Jesus identifies this of himself. He says, tear this 
temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And then the author says, well, he's talking about his body. They didn't know that at the time, but that he was talking about his body. And then John also mentions this in John 1, where he says, uh, he took on flesh and tabernacled. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled amongst, uh, amongst us. And he uses that word intentionally. Jesus is the physical presence of God there once again with his people. So he is the new temple, the new tabernacle. But then it extends a little bit further into the New Testament where Paul actually identifies the people of Christ, Christians, as being the living temple, the living tavern, the living tabernacle of God. In you, in you is the presence of the Holy Spirit. You are a temple or a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. And so his people now take up that, that mantle as followers of Christ. So now let's take a, a look there here at the end of Exodus and the beginning of the book of Leviticus to show what the purpose of the book of Leviticus really is. Now you'll remember just as a, a again, once again, a brief overview, when we say tabernacle, here's what we're looking at. Tabernacle, tent of meeting, same thing, okay? But it's a basically a a portable Garden of Eden. Here we've got an outside fence where the Jews could congregate inside the courtyard. Inside the holy place is where priests were welcome to go, but inside the Holy of Holies, only uh, Moses, and eventually we'll see Aaron, is allowed in the Holy of Holies, but only the high priest uh, is allowed in the Holy of Holies. Eventually when this becomes a temple, uh, it'll be effectively the same kind of thing there. Okay, so we move on. I don't think my iPad is working here. Hang on one second. All right, there we go. Um, at the end of the book of Exodus, something very strange happens because they've built the temple, they built the tabernacle, excuse me. Mo Moses and Aaron have finished the preparations. All the builders and all the crafters have all finished the preparations and they take a step back and we're ready to commence to getting on with this whole tabernacle thing. And this cloud, which is the presence of God, descends on the tabernacle, and Moses isn't allowed in. Well, we've done all this work, and we're ready to actually commence to meeting with God. It is, after all, called the tent of meeting, and we can't even meet with him. Because, why? Well, because his, he's, <laughs> turns out he's so holy. That's the reason. Uh, that they can't just waltz into his presence. And so it seems to defeat the purpose of all of Exodus. And it leaves you with this cliffhanger. Here you, you go through 20, nearly 20 chapters of the description of what the temple will be like and then the building of the tabernacle. And by the time it's actually built, well, they don't even get to walk in. So you see this cloud descending on um, the the tabernacle, Moses decides, or Moses sees that he cannot enter the tent of meeting because the cloud of God's presence prevents him from going in. Now, if you're a reader of the book of Exodus, this is a, a kind of one of those memory cues for you. You know, you, you recognize this cloud from earlier in the book. The Bible is filled with, I think the best metaphor that I've ever heard for this, the Bible is filled with uh, hyperlinks you, know, you read a news article and you see those little words underlined in blue and you mouse over them, you click on them, they take you to another article. The Bible's filled with these little kind of hyperlinks that take you back to various places, things you're supposed to know already. Well, this cloud descends on the tabernacle, but you've seen this cloud before. In fact, in Exodus 24, 15, and 16, this cloud, which is God's presence, descends on Mount Sinai. 
And so it, this same cloud then transfers over to the tabernacle. It furthers this idea that the tabernacle is not just a portable Eden, it's a portable Sinai. Just like Sinai had that threefold tier, that the top uh, uh, precipice of, of Mount Sinai where only Moses could go to meet with God and then down on the mountain where the priest could go but the people could not and then down on the ground where the people were allowed to congregate. It's this sort of threefold tier just like the tabernacle has actually. And so um, it, it furthers this idea that what's happening with the tabernacle is well we've got to leave this place. We can't just stay at Sinai forever because this isn't the land that I promised to give you through Abraham. It's way up north, and so we've got to go. But God is going with us. Well, how is he going to go with us? We've got to build a tabernacle for him to go with us, for his presence to dwell. And so at one point, even in the process of Moses interacting with God on Mount Sinai, he had to wait six days before he could, before he could even enter into God's presence. God's presence dwelt there, called Moses up, and Moses just kind of had to sit there until he was invited into the presence of God. If you look there in your verse packet, we've got Exodus 24, 15, and 16. Somebody read that out loud. Um, so six days there he waited to enter the presence of the Lord. Uh, there's, there's a, I, I think you're pro- you should be probably, hopefully, hearing this on Sunday morning regularly. Hopefully you're hearing it on, on Wednesday night regularly. Um, the way I've heard, best heard it phrased is, is the Lord uh, chooses who enters his own front door. He guards his own front door. He's the one that determines how man is to meet with him. He's the one that sets the rules. The reason why I think that that's really important is because it helps to explain the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is very strange and can sometimes be boring. Right? Yes, it's okay to admit it. It's okay. It's, it's probably not a book that you're, you're reading for your devotional all the time. It might be a book that you read when you have insomnia. You, you read it, and it, it helps you, right? I, I get it. It, it does. And, and there are times where it's, just, it's hard to connect with the book of Leviticus. One, because it, it sort of has this mystical effect to it. You, do, you don't really understand it. The other part is it just seems to be law after law after law. And why is all of this? Well, if we start with the foundation that God has a front door, and he's the one that guards it, Man doesn't just get to waltz into his presence and just get to determine the, the ground for the meeting. That God is the one that determines that. And we see that even there in Exodus. It leads us into Leviticus. It helps to make, make a little bit more sense of Leviticus. Now, the whole book of Leviticus is basically detailing how the sinful Israelites are going to enter into the presence of a holy God without... This is the caveat without experiencing his wrath. Oh, sure, probably Moses could have just waltzed in to the Holy of Holies, but he would have died. So there's a curtain there in front of the Holy of Holies so that nobody can just look in because if they were to look in and they were to see the presence of God, well, they would die. So 
how does mankind enter into the presence of God without experiencing His wrath? Look at Leviticus 1, 1 to 4, either in your Bible or in your verse packet there. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall, make a, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. This, is, this opens the book of Leviticus. This is the grounds for which a person would actually be able to enter into the presence of God without experiencing his wrath. Now, let's keep going. Um, the book of Leviticus is written, I think the, the whole purpose of the book of Leviticus is to help the children of Israel understand the importance of God's holiness. Now, they already have some experience with this with the episode of the golden calf. Remember, they make the calf out of gold. Aaron says, well, I just threw some gold in there and it just popped out a calf. Uh, and, and God is telling Moses, get out of my way and I'm going to kill these people and I'm going to start over with you. Um, so they, they've had some experience. They had to drink some water that was not so great, uh, littered with gold and all kinds of other things. Uh, some were killed. It, you know, They've had some experience with the wrath of God already and the, the holiness of God and, and, and how, how st uh, standing apart he is uh, from the rest of the gods that they may be tempted to worship. But I think all of Leviticus is helping to spell that out. So not only does God define who enters his front door and how, but he also sets the expectation in the book of Leviticus that he's holy and that you need to, you need to understand that. And that he defines how you interact with his holiness. Now, if we're going to understand the book of Leviticus, I think it's helpful to see kind of the overall layout of how it takes shape. You can see there the attachment that I've included, which is basically an outline of the book of Leviticus. I hope that that will be helpful as you read through it. But basically, chapters 1 to 7 describe different kinds of sacrifices, of the different kinds of sacrifices that people have to make. And we're going to talk more about those in just a minute. But there's the different kinds of sacrifices that people have to make. And then it moves into chapters 8 to 10. These are all going to stay up on the screen so you can uh, write them down. But chapters 8 to 10 then begin to focus on the preparation of Aaron as the high priest. So how does Aaron then begin to function as the high priest? Then we get from there to chapters 11 to 16, where we see an outline of, the, of purity laws, of what will make a person uh, pure versus impure. And then chapters 17 to 27, I think I accidentally skipped two. Hold on. I'm going back. There we go. Uh, 17 to 27 are laws about holiness. And... Most of the time, your questions about Leviticus or maybe your questions from lost friends are going to come about probably somewhere between chapters 11 and 27. When we start talking about purity laws and we start talking about 
laws that, that help us to understand the holiness of God. Every Wednesday night when we come in here, we talk about praying for people that we know that are lost. And there, I think there was a, a, an era uh, not that long ago, some people in this room will probably remember that era, where the expectation was that you went to church. That was the expectation. If somebody didn't go to church and you asked them, why aren't you going to church? They would feel really guilty about that. And they would think to themselves, yeah, I probably do need to get to church. And that might have even been the only goading that you needed to give to somebody for them to show up on Sunday. Right? Anybody remember this era? Am I telling a lie here? You remember this? That era is largely gone. And now we're having to deal with a lot of questions about the text of Scripture. And I think probably there's another group of people in this room that have probably had some questions from friends that they've been sharing the gospel with that when they ask those questions, they go, I honestly do not know. I think to some degree, we begin to kind of rest on our laurels and we think that the culture will always be the way that it is right now. And so the culture is expected to come to church. And so because the, church is, uh, the culture is expected to come to church, we just tell them to come to church and they do. We just invite them to church and they, they get it and they give their life to Jesus and then we, we move on. But now they sit back and go, why should I even believe the Bible? There was a, a period when I was growing up where biblical illiteracy was a big thing. Um, people didn't understand how to read the Bible. But the problem was that we never solved that problem in that era. And so now biblical illiteracy has transitioned to biblical apathy. So it's not just that I don't know how to read the Bible. It's I don't think it's important at all or it should govern my life. It's not illiteracy merely. It's apathy. They don't really care. It's one thing to know that you can't read. It's another thing to not really want to or have a desire to. So we now are living in a culture where the people that are asking questions are asking questions about the text of Scripture and they're saying, well, you look at these laws. What about this? You, 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 you say that homosexuality is a sin, but you eat shellfish, right? Anybody ever heard this? You've heard this retort, okay? You, you, you say homosexuality is wrong, as it says there in Leviticus. You'll go back to Leviticus 18.22 and you'll say, hey, there it says right there, you should not sleep with a man as you sleep with a woman. But if you just turn back to chapter 11, he says you shouldn't eat shellfish either. Yet, I, I think, actually think we should go back to that. <laughs> They're ocean crickets. That's all they are. <laughs> God buried them under thousands of gallons of water for a reason. Okay, uh, but I digress. <laughs> but it says there, well, you shouldn't eat shellfish. You should only eat things with scales. So, do, do What? That, that's exactly right. But hey, well, hey, so then, so then if I'm playing the role of the, of the uh, skeptic, I'm saying, okay, so the Bible contradicts itself. Fine. I don't care. Which, pick your poison, right? The point is what they're saying is not that I don't understand it. It's that I don't care to understand it. 
and that I'm taking some assumptions with me into this conversation and I'm putting them on you, but because we have always taught you as churches to just go out and share the gospel with your friends and just give them a nudge and invite them to church. And then when you do, you're confronted with this kind of worldview and you go, I don't know what to say. What do I even tell this person when they bring those kinds of things up? How do I answer why those two things are there in Leviticus? I don't think this was specifically just right? That too. Yes. Well, but that's, that's the thing, right? Is like, it may take the unbeliever bringing it up. And then you go, you know what? Yeah, I don't, I really, I don't know. I never thought of that. And I don't know the answer to that question. And, but then there's an assumption in our culture that not only is that a good question that's going to stump you, but that there's not a good answer for it. But there actually is. So, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight, but, um, But suffice it to say, the book of Leviticus breaks down roughly this way. And so you can see these kinds of divisions. If you go along my chart, it basically goes along that pretty pretty much the same outline and breaks down each section and what's going to be found there and how those things are going to be grouped because there is a pattern to it, I do think. Now, um, one of the things that I think helps us to see the point of Leviticus most clearly is going to be in this story about Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. So Nadab and Abihu are in the, the temple and they're, they're doing sacrifice and they, they, are, they throw up some incense that is not in accordance with how God told them to do it. And so we see there in Leviticus 10, 1 to 6, the story. So why don't we read that? Leviticus 10, 1 to 6. Now Nadab and Abihu... The sons of Aaron each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And, the, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. Now, it doesn't seem like fair punishment. Let's just call it out. Here's Nadab and Abihu, and they offer up what the Bible calls unauthorized fire, which is fire that is not commanded by the Lord and is not told, this is how you will worship me. And so he kills him. But... In front of the people of Israel, this is an outright rebellion to what the Lord has said. This is how you will worship me. 
And again, we go back to this same picture. God is holy, and he sets the terms of how we interact with him, period. If God is all-knowing, if he is our creator, if he is holy, then he sets the terms. We, as his creatures, must abide by them. This is the same reason uh, Uzzah in the Old Testament reaches out his hand to stop the Ark of the Covenant from falling, and he perishes as soon as he touches it. You're not supposed to. Better that it hit the ground. We'll figure it out after that. But don't die. Don't reach out to touch it, or you'll die. God's, God preserves his own name before anything else. Questions about that? Everybody good? Well, you can, and you can see in the New Testament this pattern that sort of evolves of, of the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees beginning to kind of um, build these sort of borders around the, around the law of these are good practices, these are traditions, but these traditions were formed as a way of keeping us from breaking the very law itself. And so setting up these sort of borders around the law to just sort of keep everybody safe, you can kind of see why. I mean, I'm not going to say that they're good guys at all, but I'm just kind of saying, you know, I understand it. I get it. I get why they did it and why they would feel that way about the law itself, that we need to stay very, very far away from it. But to, to move on to get to sort of the end where, where I want to kind of camp out on some of these things, uh, some of these concepts, um, I've lost my place. Um, the Levites, the tribe uh, that is basically called the priestly tribe, they were to be especially distinct from among the other tribes of Israel. They were to be set apart even more so than the Israelites themselves. They were to be set apart. And so they, they were to be completely and totally distinct. They had, as an example, they had to be ceremonially clean. There it is. They had to be ceremonially clean. They had to maintain ceremonial cleanliness the uh, before they ever walked into the tabernacle or later the temple. They had to be physically whole. Uh, and a lot like how we see, actually in the New Testament church, we see the qualifications for elders. Their children had, uh, could not behave in a manner that would bring public shame. Look at Leviticus 21.9. There on, on the back of your... Did I put it down there? Yeah, it is. That second to the end there. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. So there you go. Uh, not hard to swallow at all, right? Uh, but the qualifications for being a priest, much like the qualifications for deacon and elder in the New Testament, is that your children have to be well-behaved. Your children have to be uh, submissive, as it were. And so uh, this was true of the priests. Um, the, and not only that, but they were able to teach people. Leviticus uh, 10, 10 to 11. You are to be distinguished between, uh, uh, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. 
You see these kind of common characteristics that are picked up even in the New Testament for the church. They don't, they're not born out of whole cloth. They come from a long history of Judaism that's then modeled in the New Testament for the church. Um, but So what, what we see with Nadab and Abihu is that they fail to fulfill their very purpose as priests. They're supposed to teach the people around them how to revere the Lord and how to treat Him as holy. And how are they going to do that if they take the words that he gives them and they abuse it and they twist it and they don't follow it to the letter? That doesn't set apart God as holy in the minds of his people at all. Now, we see in Leviticus these types of offerings that come up. There's five main categories for offering. There's the burnt offering. Um, There is the grain offering. There's the peace offering. I'm leaving these up on the screen so you can see them. There's the sin offering. And there's the guilt offering. Now, these are the broad categories. Under those categories are other kinds of offerings that will be, uh, will be made. But with the first three, the burnt, the grain, and the peace offering, these are going to be voluntary offerings. So as an example, the burnt offering would be an offering that you would offer an animal of some kind. I think there's, there's several different kinds of animals that could be used, a bull, a sheep, a goat, a dove, or a pigeon. Um, but the animal that's brought is going to be burned on the offering, and it's going to be there for an atonement for sin. Well, now, how is the burnt offering any different than the sin offering? The sin offering is mandatory. The burnt offering is voluntary. So the burnt offering would be done... Anytime during the year where you realize that you've committed a sin, maybe a sin that you think you might have committed, you're going to bring that before the priest and offer a burnt offering. Then you have the grain offering. Um, The grain offering is basically fruit of the field. It's uh, uh, an offering of uh, thanksgiving to God for his provision. This is the the offering that actually allows there to be a, a cup poured out, a drink offering poured out on the altar as well. So you've probably heard of a drink offering. The drink offering isn't a category of offering. It is an offering that goes with a grain offering. So you bring a grain offering and you put it on the, on the altar as a, as a thanksgiving to God. And then you pour a quart of wine or one quarter in of wine um, on top of the altar and it goes up in incense. So it's part of the, the, uh, the grain offering. And then you've got um, the, the peace offering. The peace offering is going to be a, an offering where two people have had an altercation and they come together and the priest mediates this offering. He takes their animal or their fruit or their crop or whatever. He burns it on the altar and there they celebrate the meal. Now you've probably heard of a wave offering. Heard of a wave offering? Okay. A wave offering is the part of all of those offerings that the priest gets to take. So he takes the piece of the meat or he takes a piece of the grain or whatever it is, waves it before the Lord and says, this is yours too, God. I'm eating this, but it's yours too. And God releases that that part of the offering for the priest to actually have. It's not a category of offering, but it falls underneath one of these big umbrellas of offering. Um, So then you've got the sin offering. The sin offering is a mandatory offering. And the purpose of the sin offering is to atone for sin, to cleanse uh, sin uh, from defilement, basically. Um, You could have, it depends on your your poverty versus your your, um, 
prosperity as to what kind of offering you would bring, whether it would be an animal all the way down to a small portion of flour that you would give. And then the last, you've got the guilt or trespass offering where you have, you're coming to basically make atonement to, as kind of a, a repayment. So there's the sin that you've, made, you've committed against the Lord, but then there's the sin that you may have committed, uh, the, the ramifications of that sin. So let's say you run over your neighbor's ox or you kill him on purpose because you, you just wanted to spite your neighbor. Okay, you make amends with your neighbor, maybe through a peace offering. You come together at the temple, but then you also give the guilt offering because I, I need to give you one ox uh, or one, one bull as payment for what I have done to my neighbor. Does that make sense? So these are, these are basically the categories that Leviticus walks through of, of helping us to understand the kinds of offerings that would be offered. Basically, this is trying to govern all aspects of their life together as a community. How does their sin against one another impact their relationship with the Lord and their service in the temple. And so we've got these categories of offering. Questions about that? Guilt offering would be, uh, I've, got, I've committed a sin and I've, give, I've made atonement for that sin, but then there are, there's ramifications of that sin. My sin has impacted other people. So maybe uh, our infidelity. There was an affair, right? And so you, you have atoned for that sin before the Lord, but then there's also the fact that that's impacted families. And then so there's guilt and there's other things that follow after that. So um, Michael, they're volunteering sin when you uh, have an offering. Say that one more time. Okay, you said voluntary for sins. No, uh, burnt grain peace, voluntary. Voluntary. Uh, some of them, yeah, burnt offering. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then there's the big S that's mandatory. Yes. Well, so for instance, the Day of Atonement is a mandatory oh, sin okay. offering okay. that's given on behalf every year. That's given on behalf of the uh, whole. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, the uh, um, Passover wouldn't. I guess Passover could probably suffices that too. I, th- I think it would qualify as a sin offering. There's, there's these mandatory ones throughout the year of sin offerings, mainly the Day of Atonement would be one of those, yeah. Okay, any other questions? Hopefully I can answer them. I'm not the authority. Yeah, yeah, that was their purpose. Teach them the law, right? That's what they did. They taught. Uh, the priests, that's what they did. That's what the, that was their purpose. Um, now, so in the Old Testament, the thing, the way that I think it's best to begin to put a, to the best lens, I guess I would say, to look through as you read the book of Leviticus, as you read the book of Deuteronomy, even Numbers, even some Exodus, there's going to be laws mentioned there, is to kind of break these laws down into broad categories. All of these laws, most of them at least anyway, I think probably all of them, could be categorized in the following ways, in three big broad categories. The first would be the civil law, the second would be the ceremonial law, and the third would be the moral law. The civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. Um, Now, when when I say the moral law, the other two are moral like, you can't just avoid the ceremonial law of an offering. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to, I'm not going to worry about that because it's not a moral law anyway. No, no, they're all moral. But what we're talking about with the moral law are the kinds of laws that speak to God's moral character, the nature of God's moral character that is unchanging. 
Okay, so the civil law is going to govern how Israel is going to function together as a nation. How they're going to function as a nation. The ceremonial law is going to govern how they worship the Lord. So it's going to be things that are where we're talking about pure and impure, clean versus unclean, things like that, ways in which things you have to do in order to be able to even worship in the temple. These are going to be these are going to fall under the ceremonial law. And then we're going to have. um, Sorry, I lost my place here. Yeah, then we're going to have the moral law, which reflected God's assessment of good and evil. You remember the Garden of Eden, Adam wanted to determine what was what good and evil was for himself, and so he sought that out. But here the moral law is coming in to say, let me tell you and let me teach you what good and evil actually is. So the moral law functions for us as a way of being able to assess good and evil. Now, where does this actually come up? I want you to open your Bibles if you've got them to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. I brought this up earlier, and I think thinking through these categories for me has always been helpful as we seek to kind of even engage the culture around us. Um, Leviticus chapter 18. Verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. He goes on here, and in fact, all of chapter 18 is really defining the sexual ethic for the people of Israel how you are going to be set apart from the rest of the nations. Most of the laws that you're going to see, especially the civil laws and the ceremonial laws, their design, yes, their design is to help the nation interact with the Lord. But the civil law is really given so that the people of Israel are set apart from the rest of the nations. Why would God care how a beard is trimmed? That doesn't make sense. Don't round the corners. Don't use a razor on your face. You can use it on your neck. Jews to this day will shave their neck with a razor, but won't the rest of their face. Why is that? Well, Because the civil law says that they can't. And that civil law is to set them apart from the rest of the world for the most part. Some of the, cer- the ceremonial laws designed to do that too, the food laws and things like that, setting them apart from the rest of the world that wants to act a different way. In fact, a lot of the offerings that they have, uh, one of the, I, I, I believe it is the guilt offering maybe, it might be the guilt offering, one of the things that the pagan gods, the Canaanite gods and the Egyptian gods allowed in the guilt offering was to bring in their own children inside the, uh, inside the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice there to their gods so their own children would be, would be the guilt offering. And God has expressly forbidden that inside of his... And it, it actually happened once in Judges. And they were condemned for it because they did something that is expressly condemned in the law. And so these, the people of Israel are being set apart from the rest of the nation. So some of the laws are functioning that way to draw a line between them and the other, the other cultures around them. 
But here we come to this law in Leviticus 18 and following, especially in verse uh, 22. And we read that now, and you read that into our culture, and our culture pushes back and says, well, you pick that verse, and Paul even picked that verse, let's say, and he brings that over to the New Testament. But why does he pick that one, and somehow you can eat shellfish? Peter tells you, or John tells you, or Matthew tells you, or Luke tells you in Acts that you don't have to worry about what your, your dietary laws, but, but all of a sudden the sexual ethic matters more than the rest of them. Why is that? And you have here pretty plainly in the text God saying um, that it is an abomination. He says it, it is an abomination. It's an offense. It's an abomination. But then go back to Leviticus chapter 11, Verses 9 to 12. He says, These you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the water that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers you may eat. But anything in the seas or rivers that does not have fins or scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters uh, is detestable to you. You shall guard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. And then look down at verse 24. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be unclean until the evening. What is God doing with these dietary restrictions? What's he saying about these dietary restrictions? What part of the law do they fall under? Yeah, they're, they're, well, they're the ceremonial laws, right? They make you unclean. One thing we need to kind of remove here is the idea that unclean equals sinful. It doesn't necessarily equal sinful. It's that you're, you, um, in many cases, especially when you come to things like bodily fluids, so here's an, here's an example. This might get a little uncomfortable. Sorry. Um, a woman, once a month, is sent to the outside of the camp. She's ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. That doesn't mean she's a sinner. That doesn't mean that she's being sinful or that they're abusing her. It's that she's coming in contact with fluid that is associated with death. That's why it's unclean. That's why if you touch a dead carcass of one of these, you're unclean. Because you're coming in contact with death. What, what is death again? Product of... Yeah, of sin. That's not the original intention of the world that God created. So the reminder that sin is in the world, think of it like that, you're coming in contact with the reminder that sin is in the world, and then you're going to try to waltz right into God's presence with that reminder of death all over you. That's why they had to wash. That's why they had to sit outside the camp. That's why they had to stay where they were. They couldn't come in and worship. It wasn't that because you because once a month this happens to you outside of your control that you're condemned no 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 
This is simply you're coming in contact with fluid that is a reminder of death. You can't just walk into the presence of a holy God with that reminder on you. Okay? Does it make sense? You, you, we go to see? the New Testament. Okay. In regard to what Pat said. Okay. Okay. Because so. Yeah. Now, what is happening then with Jesus? What is he doing? Well, he's coming in and he's tearing the curtain that stands between God and his people. That Jesus is is on the cross. They're taking the wrath of God for you. There exists no more wrath for those that are in Christ. If you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. So what that means is that you can come into his presence. So if Christ is destroying the curtain between the Holy of Holies, and there's now no more barrier between you and Christ, then what purpose do food laws even serve? Even in Christ's ministry, he's abolishing the food laws. Mark chapter 7, he does this. While he's still here, he hasn't even died yet. Because he's pointing everyone to him. We're going to see Sunday with the woman at the well. His purpose is to tell her, I'm better than the prophets. And I'm better than Jacob. And in me is true worship. You don't need to worry about worshiping on your mountain here. Just come to me and I'll give you living water. Right now, you come to me. So the food laws have no bearing anymore. Yes, good and evil still exist as a, 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 as a reality of the world we live in. It's the reason that we're going to die is because we now simultaneously live under the headship of Adam, a sin that we've inherited, a fallenness we've inherited. But because even though we're under the headship of Adam, he's our, our I guess you'd say, our figurehead. He sinned, we all die now because we fall under him. We're born of his line. How are we born of Christ's line? How are we born of Christ's line? Christ is not born of Adam's line. He's another head over here. You you see where I'm going? Okay. How are we born of Christ's line? The Holy Spirit comes in and changes our heart so that we believe in Christ and we're now born of the Spirit. We're not just born of man, of water. We're also born of the Spirit. So we simultaneously live in two realities, born both of Adam and of Christ. We have two figureheads, essentially. So the part of us that is under the headship of Adam has to die. That's not long for this world. Once that dies, we're going to be given a whole new body, and it's all going to be under the headship of Christ. So our body is going to be remade like his. So we're now, we'll then be fully under the headship of Christ. So now there's still the presence of evil. That's why we, we, categor, we say it, uh, we, we live in the already and not yet. We are already part of Christ's family. And we're also in some ways not yet fully part of Christ's family because we still have this uh, atomness on us that will die, will perish. So if someone questioned that uh, verse 22. Yeah. Yeah, you need to understand how these laws function. These laws have a purpose. So he doesn't just give them a restriction on seafood because he, he 
there's a lot of allergies that can be caused with shellfish, and that might be unhealthy for them. And God forbid one of them start to puff up when they eat a shellfish and they die. Uh, that, that's what I th- Some of our arguments are really bad because we, we, say, we say things like, well, he did all this because of health reasons and things like, no, well, he separated them from the culture. That's one thing for sure, where people were eating pigs and things like that. But he's, he's separating them from the culture. But then he, he's, he's also uh, setting them apart and saying, this is how you're, you're going to enter into my presence. Not only are you not going to be like the rest of the culture, but this is what it's going to take to be ceremonially clean. And then when the, Jesus comes along, he abolishes those ceremonial laws. So all of those, those laws of ceremony have a, a function. They serve to, to enter into the presence of God. Well, now in Christ, I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Right. Right. We're part of his body. Exactly. So so when it comes to when it comes to law, I'm not picking and choosing. I'm saying that what God has said about his laws is that there are some that speak to the very nature of his character. You're never going to be allowed to murder. That's never going to be a thing. There's nothing that Jesus has done to make it so that now murder is okay. Never. Because that speaks to the very nature of who God is and how he's created us to be. The same would be our sexual ethics. The same would be true of a lot of different things in Scripture. It's never okay to steal. And you notice when Christ starts speaking to the law, he speaks to the moral law. He's speaking to, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, what is he speaking to? He's, He's speaking to the moral law. Whether it be your sexual fidelity to your wife or to your spouse or whatever, the list goes on, your anger and, your, and murder of other people. He's speaking to the moral law. And then when it comes to the ceremonial law, he's, it's done. It's gone. Circumcision is right in there with that. Paul says, look, if, we're circ- if we circumcise for the purposes of being close to God, we've fallen prey to legalism and we're going to be cut off because that's not how salvation comes. That's part of the ceremonial law. It's denying that Christ has actually done a work, a tremendous work. Questions? Comments? Concerns? Go ahead. And he put the shrimp in his mouth, and I knew that he had that restriction in his life. And I said, oh, you just put shrimp in your mouth, and he gets, he just turned white as a ghost. And he put it in, in that thing, and I said, I, I said, do you, why, why is shrimp so, um, so, you know, taboo? And he said, God said. Yeah. That's a good response from your rabbi friend. Yeah. That that would be he wouldn't do it because God said it didn't matter what it was. That's right. That's right. But at the same time, that's a right understanding of even where we are now. Um, Why is it? Why is it that something as foolish as sharing the gospel? 
causes someone to be born again? Because God said. That's why. Um, to be, maybe, maybe this might sound crass, and some of you might agree with this. Um, what I do is stupid. That is so, you stand up behind a pulpit and you read the Bible and you say what it means and why it matters. And there are people that come to faith in Christ and will have eternal life because they respond to it in faith and repentance. That's ridiculous. Paul says that in, in 1 Corinthians almost exactly. It's foolishness. And people think it, a lot of people think it's foolishness. But God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And so by that foolish method of sharing the gospel with somebody, just walking up to somebody and just saying, this is the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for you and took the wrath of God that you deserve so that by believing in him, you could have eternal life. And that by that message, there are people that, whose eyes open, whose the scales fall off, and they come to faith in Christ. Seems ridiculous. Go ahead. Or maybe I just didn't say it. No, no. Okay, so you're talking about, like, you know, circumcision, this whole thing. Like, if we do that, then, like, so what, where, okay, the line, then. Like, we still do something, but we don't. So where was that line drawn again? Yeah, um, it, it's not easy to determine. But when you read the scriptures, in the, especially in Leviticus, you can see where certain things speak to God's moral character, and they're always in effect. The question really becomes, why does the New Testament feel like it's okay, the authors of the New Testament feel like it's okay, for some laws to be ignored altogether? That's the reason, is because they speak to their laws of ceremony or their laws of civility. So how Israel functions as a nation. We're not Israel. So we don't have the laws Israel has. So when it talks about how Israel will treat the sojourner, that's not incumbent on every nation around the world to do that. Right? So the New Testament feels like it can drop out large aspects of the law, but other aspects of the law it doubles down on. So Paul will be, will be lax on circumcision or lax on dietary laws. He'll say, just get rid of them altogether. Or um, there was one that just came to mind a minute ago. But anyway, there, he'll be lax on a lot of these. And then he'll double down on children obey your parents that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. It's the only one that comes with a promise after all, he reminds you. Why does he double down on that one and then on circumcision he just lets it go? And that's the reason why. is because they fall under different categories of the law. They speak to different aspects of what God was trying to do initially. So in Leviticus, it's, it's, it's not always, they're not broken down into clean categories. Like you're, you're not going to be able to read through and go, well, here's all the moral laws. Let me set those aside for just a second. But you can see if you read enough, you'll see where God is setting aside certain aspects of the law that speak to his character. This defies me and my nature. Sacrificing a child in the Holy of Holies, right? Uh, some of these are really obvious, but the, these sorts of laws are, are teaching you how, why God is holy and who he is as a person. But then there are other laws that govern how you will approach the Holy of Holies or how you will approach the temple courtyard or how you will... Um, 
worship him. And those have dropped away in Christ. And then there are laws that govern Israel as a nation. And you can pretty, for the most part, you can see those connections as you read through Leviticus. Yeah. But what you let out from your heart, murder, yeah. love, you know, uh, incest, those kind of that is sinful. Defile. And, yeah. and he, defies, he divides it that way. Yeah. What you take in, that's yeah. not That goes through your stomach and out your mouth. Yeah. Yes, that, 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 is, that is Jesus actually drawing those lines between moral and ceremonial laws. Yep, yep, yep. It, ta- it, it, it takes discernment. It takes, it takes a lot of hard work reading through Leviticus and saying, where does this fall? And some of them are, are a little more obscure and they're a little more difficult, but the vast majority of them will fall into those categories. And they'll be a lot easier to understand as you read through the book of Leviticus what God is actually trying to do there, separating them from the culture, teaching them about his holiness, and defining it for them and setting those parameters very clearly for them that they should obey. So, yeah. It is 7.30. Let's... Yeah. Ho, ho, any other comments? Write them down before you forget them so that you can bring them next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for a time to get together and to read your word. And uh, the law is so difficult for us sometimes is in the New Testament to, to look back and, and understand and read. I pray that for help as we read through in our yearly reading plans or as we, um, as we read through just maybe even on our own, that you would help us to get insight and wisdom from those texts to, to, for us to walk away with a true reverence and awe for how holy you really are, that that has never changed and it won't ever change and that our submission to you uh, and a requirement thereof will, will not change. And so we are so uh, grateful for that, but we are also abundantly grateful for Christ and the work that he has done for us on the cross, a work that we could obviously, looking at all these laws, never accomplish on our own, that inside of our heart is wickedness and is sin, and we are, we are under Adam and therefore condemned. And so we know that, and the strict adherence to the law and obedience to the law, we could never do, and Christ did it for us. And so we're grateful for that. And um, may we come together as a church body and worship every Sunday morning because of that fact. Um, We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.